As we celebrate Black History Month, the sad reality is that American public schools are increasingly separate and unequal. There's no doubt that racial segregation in American public schools is increasing. Harvard professor Gary Orfield has done the major studies about this. But a decade ago, he released a study titled Schools More Separate, Consequences of a Decade of Resegregation. It carefully documents that in the 1990s, American public schools became substantially more racially separate. In the South, for example, he shows that from 1988 to 1998, most of the progress of the previous two decades in increasing integration in the region was lost. Now, the percentage of African-American schools attending majority white schools has steadily decreased since 1986. For example, in 1986, 62.9% of black students attended schools that were 50 to 100% comprised of minority students. By 1998-99, this had increased to 70.2%. Most recently, Orfield released a report in January 2009 and it shows over the last decade the problem of racially segregated schools continue to get worse. By 2006-07, 73% of African American students attended schools that were between 50 and 100% minority. 38.5% attended schools between 90 and 100% minority. Quite significantly, Professor Orfield shows that the same is true with regard to Latino students. The historic focus for desegregation has been to integrate African-American and white students. But the ever-increasing Latino population requires that desegregation focus on this racial minority as well. The percentage of Latino students attending schools with the majority of students are minority races, almost exclusively minority races, increased steadily over the 1990s in the last decade. In the 2006-07 school year, 78% of Latino students attended schools that were between 50 and 100% minority students. About 40% of Latino students attended schools between 90 and 100% minority students. The overall statistics for major city public schools could not be more discouraging for those who believe in desegregation. In Chicago, by earlier in the last decade, 87% of public school enrollment was black or Hispanic. Less than 10% of the children in the schools were white. In Washington, D.C., 94% of the children in the public schools were black or Hispanic. Less than 5% were white. In St. Louis, 82% were black or Hispanic. In Philadelphia and Cleveland, 79%. In Los Angeles, 84%. In Detroit, 96%. In Baltimore, 89%. The racial separation, unfortunately, is accompanied by the reality that the separate schools are unequal. In 1972, education expert Christopher Jenks estimated on an average 15 to 20 percent more was being spent on each white child's education than each black child's schooling. This was true throughout the country. For example, in the early 1970s, the Chicago Public Schools spent $5,000 plus for each student's education, but in the Niles school system just north of the city, it was 9371 in Camden, it was 3,358 per pupil. In Princeton, it was 7,725 per pupil. The disparity continues to this day. Jonathan Kozel, in his stunning book, Savage Inequalities, documents the continued disparity in expenditures between the suburban schools and the city schools. In Chicago, for example, 
$17,291 was spent on the Highland Park schools and the Deerfield schools, which were only 10% black and Latino, compared with $8,482 per pupil in the Chicago Public Schools, which are 87% black and Latino. A few more examples, and these are statistics from not quite a decade ago, the most recent available. In the Philadelphia era, 17,261 is spent per pupil in the Lower Merion schools, which are 9% black and Latino, compared to Philadelphia schools, where half as much about is spent, $9,299 per pupil, in a system that's 79% black and Latino. In New York, 22,000 was spent on each student in the uh, Manasset Public Schools, 9% black and Latino, compared with 11,607 in the New York City schools that are 72% black and Latino. So the reality, American public schools are increasingly separate and unequal. How did this come to be? Certainly many factors account for this, but the Supreme Court has played a large role. Three sets of Supreme Court decisions, one set in the 1970s, one in the 1990s, and a decision in this decade, this last decade, in 2007, account for the statistics that I just presented. The decisions in the 1970s were particularly critical. In San Antonio Board of Education versus Rodriguez, the Supreme Court considered whether disparities in school funding violated equal protection. The case arose out of the San Antonio metropolitan school area. Within the San Antonio metropolitan area, there's tremendous disparity in school funding. For example, the Edgewood Independent School District with approximately 22,000 students enrolled in its 25 elementary and secondary schools, was one of the poorest school districts in the area. It had a population that was over 90% Mexican-American. It spent about $356 per pupil. By contrast, Alamo Heights was the most affluent school district in San Antonio. It had school, six schools, educating about 5,000 students. It taxed at a lower rate than Edgewood, but it spent significantly more, $594 per pupil. The issue is, did that violate the right to education? Did it deny equal protection? The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, found that it did not violate equal protection and that there's no such thing as a right to education under the Constitution. Justice Lewis Powell wrote the opinion for the court. He was joined by three other Nixon appointees, Berger, Blackman, and Rehnquist, and one holdover Eisenhower appointee, Potter Stewart. A year later, the Supreme Court decided Milliken versus Bradley. It involved the Detroit area. Detroit, like so many metropolitan areas, has an inner city that is overwhelmingly minority, but is surrounded by suburbs, many of which are almost exclusively white. The federal district court there imposed an inter-district remedy that involved transferring some of the students from Detroit into the predominantly white suburbs, taking some of the students from the suburbs and bringing them to the inner city. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, declared this unconstitutional. The same five were in the majority. The four Nixon appointees, Berger, Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist, along with Potter Stewart. The Supreme Court said there could only be inter-district remedies if there were inter-district violations. In other words, unless it could be shown that the Detroit schools were also violating the Constitution, they could not be part of any remedial scheme. This did not 
end all interdistrict remedies. Still a few were able to be devised, but it made it extremely difficult and unlikely there could be interdistrict remedies. Well, without interdistrict remedies, there often can't be any meaningful desegregation. When you have a school system like Detroit that's over 95% minority students, there aren't enough white students to go around no matter what the device is to achieve desegregation. So many cities have this pattern of overwhelmingly minority inner-city public schools surrounded by white suburbs. I grew up in Chicago, where the public schools are over 85% minority. But there's overwhelmingly white suburbs not far away, to the north, to the west, to the south, where if only it were possible to transfer students, meaningful desegregation could be achieved. I've spent much of the last 30 years living in the Los Angeles area, and you see the same thing. Los Angeles public schools that are over 80% black and Latino. But then you have other schools in the area, like the Beverly Hills schools, that are predominantly white. The combination of Rodriguez and Milliken has been devastating for American public education. Milliken means that American public schools will be largely minority in inner cities, even though there's white suburbs nearby. It's what makes American schools increasingly racially separate. At the same time, you have the inner city schools with much less in the way of tax bases and less with regard to revenues to spend. The result of this is public schools that are separate and unequal. The second set of decisions occurs in the 1990s. The key cases here started with Oklahoma City Schools versus Dahl, involving obviously the Oklahoma public schools. The issue here is, if there's an effective desegregation remedy, should it end, even though lifting it will mean resegregation of the public schools? It was not until 1971 17 years after Brown, that desegregation was ordered in Oklahoma City. A federal court was very successful in desegregating the Oklahoma public schools. Almost no, child, almost no children were attending schools that were comprised of more than 90% one race. Evidence proved that ending the desegregation order would result in dramatic resegregation of these schools. The ending of the federal court's remedy would mean that over one half of Oklahoma City's elementary schools would have student bodies that are either 90% African-American or 90% non-African-American. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court held that the school desegregation order should be lifted. In an opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, with the foremost conservative justice then on the court joining to comprise the majority, the court said that once a unitary school system achieved, a federal court's desegregation order should end, even if it will mean the resegregation of the schools. The court did not define unitary system with any specificity. The court simply said that the desegregation decree should be ended if the board is complied in good faith and the vestiges of past discrimination are eliminated to the extent practicable. The court was thus saying once a federal court ending the dual system has been in effect for several years, it should be ended. Even this would mean the rapid resegregation of the public schools. Just a few years later, in 1995, the court decided Missouri versus Jenkins. The issue there was whether the desegregation order for the Kansas City public schools should be lifted. Missouri law once required the racial segregation of all public schools. 
It wasn't until 1977, some 23 years after Brown versus Board of Education, that a federal district court ordered the desegregation of the Kansas City public schools. The federal court's desegregation order made a difference. In 1983, 24 schools in the district had an African-American enrollment of more than 90%. By 1993, no elementary-level student attended a school with an enrollment that was 90% or more African-American. At the middle and high school levels, the percentage of students attending schools with an African-American enrollment of 90% or more declined from 45% to 22%. Despite this, the court in a 5-4 decision would an end to the desegregation efforts. Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote and was joined by Republican appointees O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. The court ruled that the district court's order that attempted to track non-minority students from outside the district was impermissible because there was no proof of an inter-district violation. Chief Justice Rehnquist applied Milliken v. Bradley include that the inter-district remedy incentives to attract students from outside the district to Kansas City were impermissible because there was no proof of an inter-district violation. Also, the court ruled that the continued disparity in student test scores did not justify continuation of the federal court's desegregation order. These cases resulted in lower courts across the country lifting desegregation orders. The Fourth Circuit lifted a desegregation order for the Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools. The Eleventh Circuit lifted one for the Tampa schools, and so on throughout the country. During the Vietnam War, Senator George Aiken said, the United States should declare victory and withdraw from Vietnam. The decisions of the 1990s saw the Supreme Court declaring victory over the problem of school segregation and withdrawing the judiciary from solving the problem. So the decisions of the 1970s limited what the courts could do to desegregate and equalize funding of schools. The decisions of the 1990s lifted, for a large extent, the remaining orders, and then you come to the decision from 2007, parents involved in community schools for Seattle School District Number 1. That limited the ability of school systems on their own to achieve desegregation. Case was actually two companion matters that came to the Supreme Court at the same time. One obviously involved the Seattle schools, the other involved the Louisville, Kentucky schools. What these cases shared in common was that the school boards in both cities had adopted plans that used race as one factor in assigning students to schools. The goal was to achieve desegregation. The Louisville plan involved elementary and secondary schools. The Seattle plan was just for secondary schools. But the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision declared this to be unconstitutional. Here, Chief Justice Roberts in part wrote for a majority and part for a plurality. His opinion was joined in its entirety by Justice Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Justice Kennedy concurred in part and concurred in the judgment in part. Justice Stevens, Suda, Ginsburg, and Breyer dissented. All five justices of the majority agreed that the government can use race to desegregate schools only if it could show there's a compelling interest and only if no race-neutral alternative can succeed. The result is that the ability of schools to adopt their own plans for desegregation are very limited. So the court in Milliken and Rodriguez 
makes it very hard for federal courts to do anything to meaningfully desegregate or equalize spending in schools. It's to those orders that still remain that were successful, cases like Oklahoma City versus Dahl and Missouri versus Jenkins ordered them lifted. And then when school boards on their own tried to achieve desegregation, parents involved in community schools for Seattle School District number one greatly limits their ability. The result of all of this is tragic. It's the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning. American public schools are separate and unequal. So even now, almost 55 years since Brown versus Board of Education was decided, on May 17, 1954, we find that the promise of equal educational opportunity hasn't been realized, if anything, because of these Supreme Court decisions, we've been moving in the opposite direction.